we're done with Exodus, so I figured rather than jump into another book that's going to take us 18 years to finish, uh, we would do a couple of shorter books um, and work our way through those, see the, the truths of God's Word that uh, are found in those. Uh, I thought we'd take, there's four chapters in the book of Ruth, so I'm hoping to do one a night, so it might take a month to do Ruth. It might be, I might have to split one of those chapters up. It definitely won't take two months. So we'll get the book of Ruth under our belt before we move on to something else. Usually when I start a book of the Bible and uh, we start to walk our way through it verse by verse, um, the normal practice and it is for me to take some time to introduce the book, tell you who wrote it, tell you where it came from, tell you what it's about, the themes in it, all those kind of things. Give you kind of the big picture and the overall theme because you know as well as I do, once we start working our way verse by verse, sometimes we get lost in the details. And if there's one thing we have learned, uh, we've learned that um, we, we, we benefit from context. And so we, we keep all of the verses, all the sections, all the truths and teachings in the context of the story of Scripture. And uh, if you weren't here for that a long time ago, I walked through the story of Scripture, how it's uh, a single unit, a single narrative. And um, this book, Ruth, fits into that narrative. Normally, I would do that. I would take you through what it's about and the characters and all that kind of stuff. But tonight, I'm, uh, tonight I, want, I want to do that by letting us watch this seven-minute video because I don't know that I could do it all in seven minutes, but they did. Uh, it's from the Bible Project. I don't know if you know what that is, BibleProject.com. Uh, these guys usually do a really good job of summarizing books of the Bible and walking you through uh, they're really, really beneficial. So um, uh, I thought we would just watch this. It tells us what Ruth is about, the major themes in Ruth, and it does it in a very uh, engaging way. So let's watch this little short seven-minute video on the book of Ruth, and then I'm going to try to get all the way through chapter one tonight. Uh, sound good? Okay, that's what we're going to do. All right, here we go. The Book of Ruth, it's a brilliant work of theological art, and it invites us to reflect on the question of how God is involved in the day-to-day -day joys and hardships of our lives. There are three main characters in the book, Naomi the widow, Ruth the Moabite, and Boaz the Israelite farmer. And their story is told in four chapters that are beautifully designed. Let's just dive in and see how this all unfolds. Chapter 1 opens with this line, in the days when the judges ruled, and it reminds us of the very dark and difficult days from the book of Judges. And here we meet an Israelite family in Bethlehem, struggling to survive through a famine, and so in search of food, they move on to the land of Moab, Israel's ancient enemy. And there, the father of the family dies, and the sons marry two Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. And then the sons, they die too. And so they leave only Naomi and these new daughters-in-law. And so Naomi, she has no reason to stay anymore, and so she tells her new daughters-in-law that she's moving back home. And Naomi, she knows that the life of an unmarried foreign widow in Israel is going to be very hard, and so she compels the women to stay behind. Orpah agrees. 
But Ruth does not. She shows remarkable loyalty to Naomi, and she says, wherever you go, I'm going to go. Your people will become my people, and your God will become my God. And so the two of them return to Israel together. And the chapter concludes with Naomi changing her name to Mara, which means bitter in Hebrew, and she laments her tragic fate. Chapter 2 begins with Naomi and Ruth discussing where they're going to find food. And it just so happens to be the beginning of the barley harvest. And so Ruth goes out to look for food, and it just so happens that she ends up picking grain in the field of a man named Boaz, who just so happens to be Naomi's relative. We're told that Boaz is a man of noble character, and he notices Ruth. And so after finding out more about her story, he shows remarkable generosity to her. He makes these special provisions so that the immigrant Ruth can gather grain in his field. And in doing so, Boaz is actually obeying an explicit command of the Torah to show generosity to the immigrant and the poor. Boaz is so impressed by Ruth's loyalty to Naomi, he prays for her that God will reward her for her boldness. So Ruth comes home that day, and Naomi finds out that she met Boaz, and she is thrilled. She says Boaz is their family redeemer. Now, this family redeemer thing, this was a cultural practice in Israel where if a man in the family died and he left behind a wife or children or land, it was the family redeemer's responsibility to marry that widow, to take up the land, and protect that family. So Naomi, she begins to hope that perhaps there might still be a future for her family. Chapter 3 begins with Naomi and Ruth making a plan to get Boaz to notice their situation. So Ruth is going to stop wearing clothes of a grieving widow, and she's going to show signs that she's available to be married. And so Ruth goes to meet Boaz on the farm that night. And as she approaches, Boaz wakes up, and he's totally startled. And Ruth makes her intentions very clear. She asks if Boaz will redeem Naomi's family and marry her. Boaz is once again amazed by Ruth's loyalty to Naomi and her family, and he calls Ruth a woman of noble character. It's the same term used to describe the woman of Proverbs 31. So Boaz tells Ruth to wait until the next day, and he will redeem both Ruth and Naomi legally before the town elders. And so the chapter ends with Ruth returning to Naomi, and they marvel together at all of these recent events. In chapter 4, it all comes together. It turns out, at the last minute, Boaz discovers there is a family member who's closer to Naomi than he is, and he's actually eligible before him to redeem the family. But at the last second, this family member finds out that he's going to have to marry Ruth, the Moabite, and so he declines. But Boaz, remember, he knows Ruth's true character. And so he acquires the family property of Naomi, and he marries Ruth. And so just at the beginning, how Ruth was loyal to Naomi's family, so now Boaz is loyal to Naomi's family as well. The story concludes with a reversal of all of the tragedies from chapter 1. So the death of the husband and the sons is reversed as Ruth is married again and gives birth to a new son, granting joy to Naomi. And this symmetry between the opening and the closing, it's even more remarkable. So remember, the opening tragedy was followed by a great act of loyalty on the part of Ruth. And that is now matched by Boaz's act of loyalty that leads to the family's final restoration. And this symmetry, it highlights the design of the internal chapters as well. So each of the chapters begins with Naomi and Ruth making a plan for their future. And that's followed by a providential meeting between Ruth 
and Boaz. And each chapter concludes with Naomi and Ruth rejoicing at what's taken place. This story is beautifully designed. And that design actually connects with a really interesting feature of the story. And that's how little God is mentioned. Right? The characters talk about God a few times, but the narrator actually never once mentions God doing anything directly in the story. And that's its brilliance. Because God's providence is at work behind every scene of this story, weaving together the circumstances and choices of all these characters. So Naomi, her tragedy leads her to think that God is punishing her. But actually, the whole story is about God's mission to restore her and her family. And he's doing so through Ruth, through her boldness and loyalty, which brings healing to Naomi's life. But not without Boaz, who's a no-nonsense farmer who's full of generosity and loyalty. And so God uses his integrity combined with Ruth's boldness to save Naomi and her family. And so this story brilliantly explores the interplay of God's purposes and will with human decision and will. God weaves together the faithful obedience of his people to bring about his redemptive purposes in the world. And that leads to the real end of the story. The book of Ruth concludes with a genealogy showing how Boaz and Ruth's son, Ovet, was the grandfather of King David, from whom came the lineage of the Messiah. And so all of a sudden, these seemingly mundane, ordinary events in this story are woven into God's grand story of redemption for the whole world. And so the book of Ruth invites us to consider how God might be at work in the very ordinary, mundane details of our lives as well. And that's what the book of Ruth is all about. All right, y'all got it? Okay. That's, those videos are at, at BibleProject.com, and they've got one pretty much for every book of the Bible, and they're, all, on the whole, pretty, pretty good. So I want you to see the video because it's basically, I mean, it's basically how the story of this, uh, this, this Moabite woman of noble character, as they said, is brought not only into the people of Israel, um, but is also the ancestor of David and Jesus. And so God works through all of the events that we're going to walk through, through the book of Ruth. I want you to see there's going to be tragedy, there's going to be bitterness, there's going to be loyalty and commitment and, and you know, good, I want to say good works, but Boaz really goes out on a limb for, to, to marry Ruth. And there's just all of these things where the characters make their decisions and some are wrong, some are right. And God is working through the midst of this to bring about the ancestor of the Davidic line through whom he would bring the Messiah. So it, it fits right into the grand narrative of Scripture. God, through the Old Testament, bringing forth uh, bringing forth the, the son. So that's God's purpose in the book. Um, it's fulfilled in this Moabite, you know, becoming part of Israel, ancestor of David, chosen king, ultimately the Messiah. So it is a story of loyalty. It is a story of faithfulness. Uh, even when times are hard and uncertain, uh, which we'll see here in chapter 1, uh, but in the grand scheme, it's a story of God bringing about the salvation of his people and working in the lives of individuals to do so. And in chapter one, he shows us really that, that God works through times of just 
horrible, horrible tragedy when, um, when all hope is lost. So let's begin just reading. We're just going to go through the, the text verse by verse, and we'll talk about it. I got a lot of questions uh, for you that we can discuss as we go through this. Um, in verses 1 and 2, it says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, which means, uh, what does it mean? It means Elimelech, God is my king, God is my king, something like that. And the name of his wife, Naomi, which means pleasant, um, and the names of his two sons were Mahalon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They, were, uh, they went into the country of Moab and remained that. So the opening, we're told, all this happens. The, the setting of the book of Ruth is during the time of the judges. What is the time of the judges? Not a trick question. Y'all are always worried about me asking trick questions. It's not, it's just... No, I don't care about the dates. Huh? Yeah, it was before the kings. Uh, it was after Joshua took the land and Joshua passed away. Uh, and then uh, there were judges that uh, were leading Israel. And what was the spirit of, what was the spiritual state of Israel during the judges? That's correct. That's correct. They, she said they would do good for a little while when the judges were around, and when they pass away, they go back into their idolatry. In fact, the theme of the book of Judges is, anybody know it? They all did what was right. Who said that? Anne. Look at you go, Anne. They all did what was right in their own eyes. That's exactly correct. That was the theme. And there's this, as Ginger noted, there's a cycle all through Judges. People sinned. They turned to idols. God judges them and brings them hardship, letting other nations oppress them. After a while, the people would cry out in their oppression. God would send a deliverer, a judge, who would lead them out of their oppression, and they would be faithful as that judge, as most of the judges lived. And when they died, they would go back to sin and idolatry, and the cycle would start all over again. It permeates the book of Judges. And it was during this time that the story of Ruth and Naomi and uh, Elimelech uh, happened and takes place. And knowing that cycle, knowing the theme and the setting of the book of Judges and the spiritual state of Israel, what can we assume was the cause of the famine in the land as Ruth and, not Ruth, but Naomi and Elimelech and their two sons left? Judgment. 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 So we don't know that for sure. The text doesn't tell us in Ruth, but Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, God promises if Israel's unfaithful, goes after other gods, not only will he send other nations to oppress them, but he will cut off the rains, he will send famine, all of those things. And it seems like, and this is my opinion, like I said, Ruth, the book of Ruth doesn't tell us this for sure, but it seems like only Israel is suffering from this famine because this family, Elimelech and his family, they basically travel to the land of Moab, which is right across the Jordan River. It's not that far to escape this famine. So it seems like it's Israel in, in the land that is undergoing this famine. So Elimelech decides to leave the land with his wife, Naomi. Like I said, her name means pleasant or gentle. Uh, that's going to be important later. 
uh, presumably to escape this famine. The book of Ruth also doesn't tell us how to interpret this move to Moab. Do you think it's an act of faithfulness or an act of wisdom and prudence? The reason I ask the question is because remember what God said when I bring a nation to oppress you, when I hold the reins, when I bring... What did he tell Israel to do to fix this situation? To repent and turn back to him. And so Elimelech and them decide we're going to go. Not only do they decide we're going to leave, but they decide we're going to move to one of Israel's greatest enemies. Moab, Moab had been a, a long history of uh, oppressing Israel as they came through the land. And in Judges 3, King Eglon of Moab invaded the land and oppressed Israel for 18 years before a judge was, was raised up. And so do you think it was, do you think it was, and I'm just asking, I don't have a great, I don't have a perfect answer for you. Do you think it was an act of faithlessness, sin, if you will? Or an act of wisdom and prudence to protect the family, to move his family to Moab. What do you think? There's arguments on both sides, so I'm not going to be dogmatic. I think they're going back to their family. Going back? Huh? I think they're protecting themselves and moving back to their family. Their family was in Israel. But they had family in Moab. Hmm. This kinsman redeemer dude was there. No, Boaz is in Israel. So they go to Moab and they come back to Israel. That's where Boaz is. So they're Israelites. Uh, Elimelech and Naomi and Ruth is a Moabite. Orpah is a Moabite. But we, they're, going to, they're going to meet them and the two sons are going to marry them in, in uh, Moab. Yeah, thank you. I lost for words there. What do you think? Sin was somewhat of both. Somewhat of both? Really? I didn't know that. Ha! Really? He said, y'all hear that? He said, the two names of the sons, Mahalon, Malon, however you pronounce it, and Kilion, shut up. And uh, they mean sick and frail. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Well, it's got to be right then. Okay, fair enough. He said there's a little bit of both. He said he was trying to preserve his family, of course, but he wasn't doing it by seeking after God and, you know, repenting and, and, and all those. Uh, yeah, so Matthew Henry, who is, you know, pretty well-known commentator, his opinion is that it was, uh, it was sinful. And I don't hold Matthew Henry up as infallible anything. I just thought I would put the quote up here so you could see it. He says, Matthew Henry says, It is evidence of a discontented, distrustful, unstable spirit to be weary of the place in which God has set us and to be leaving it immediately whenever we meet with any uneasiness or inconvenience in it. And so he kind of applies that to Christians uh, as we're reading through this, and he applies it to Elimelech to say, he, basically Matthew Henry's argument is 
God put them in this land. It is their land. It's the land God wants them to be in. And the reason why the famine came was because of sin, because of Israel's idolatry. And the way to relieve that and protect your family is to repent of that and turn back to God. Say that again. They had children who were sick. The two boys? If they did. If they did. Wanting to go. That's, that's why I asked the question. She said if they had kids, then boys, and they were sickly like their names evidently signify, they would want to go somewhere to get them food. You know, that's why I asked the question. Do you think it was sinful or was it just prudence and wisdom? You know, I don't have a perfect answer. And so Ruth doesn't get, the book of Ruth doesn't give us a perfect answer. Uh, so that's why I asked the question. Um, any other comments? Yes. When you look at um, Amos, over there in the second chapter of Amos, what God says about why he's never going to revoke the punishment that Moab, it's an indicator. I, I'm not sure why anybody faithful to Israel would want to go live in the enemy territory. Yeah. It's, it's not a good idea. No. She said uh, there is a long-standing and irrevocable, should I say curse or condemnation? Or uh, God said he would never revoke his punishment on Moab for what they did to Israel. So it most certainly was uh, enemy territory. They were long-standing enemies of Israel. So if, if not outright sin, it is very curious to go there instead of somewhere else. Yes? Joseph went to Egypt. He did. Well, Joseph was made to go to Egypt. Abraham went to Egypt to escape famine, right? Or was Joseph and Mary. Sorry, sorry. Joseph and Mary and Jesus. I'm thinking Old Testament. You're talking about New Testament. Yeah, yeah. Uh... We could, we could debate the issue all night, I'm sure. Um, bottom line is everything you're going to see in chapter 1 is potentially wrong decisions, tragedies, and, and hardship and bleak bitterness. Uh, it's just a very, very depressing chapter, and it's filled with th decisions made that are... You know, in some cases, you could say are sinful, and God works. God is working through this. It doesn't remove the the reality of sin or anything like that. But if you're asking my opinion, I I think Elimelech was was wrong to go to Moab. Uh, that's what I think. You know, and I I can't you know I can't I can't prove it. You can't disprove it. So that's just what I think. You know. He was, I mean, the, the, whole, the whole first part of the Bible, I'm bringing you to this land, this is your land, this is your land, and the only thing you have to do to prosper in your land is follow me, don't follow the idols, you know, and so there, there's that, uh, and Lyle, we also are working under the assumption, which indeed is an assumption, that the famine was due to Israel's sin, we're not told that in the book of Ruth either. We just glean that from the time of the judges. So we have, let's just call it tragedy right off the bat, a famine. And this family 
makes a very strange choice, to say the least, to go to Moab. And then we have tragedy again. In verse 3 it says, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. So first, Elimelech dies. Naomi's husband dies, which is sure enough a tragedy. In those days, the death of the husband meant the loss of the wife's provisions, means. You know, oftentimes they had to become beggars because of, you know, no safety net, no, no governmental assistance, no, no anything, no help from anything if there's no family. And Naomi's now in a foreign land, enemy territory, if you will, meant that there's no doubt she's going to be alienated, she's going to be destitute. But there is a little hope. I mean, she still has these two sons to take care of her. And then it says, verse 4, these, uh, these took, uh, and she was left with her two sons, these took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and, uh, and the name of the other was Ruth. Now look at this. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion, or Chilion, died, so that the, women, the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. And we find out that they also didn't have any kids either. They lived there 10 years. And so first Elimelech, and then it says these boys, you know, it, it, sin is rearing its head again. Both of the sons took Moabite wives. Remember the law we just went through? Were they supposed to take Moabite wives? No. Israelites were not supposed to marry people of the land. Over and over and over again. We skipped over Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, but it says it in there as well. Over and over and over again. They were marrying Moabites who presumably worshipped the god Chemosh. That was the Moabites' patron god. Um, and if you look at Deuteronomy 23.3, Israel was specifically told that Moabites were not to be admitted into the worshipping congregation. So we have tragedy, we have sin, we have wrong decisions, we have all of this going on, and then in verse 4 we have this other tragedy. It says they lived there about 10 years and then they died. The two sons lived in Moab with their two wives for 10 years and neither of them has any children. Now we aren't exactly told that well, we aren't told at all that Ruth and Orpah are barren, but after 10 years, definitely something wrong. And on top of that, even more devastating tragedy happens to the family. Both the sons die. So it says both of them die, and the woman, who is Naomi, was left without her two sons and her husband. Now Naomi is all alone. She's no one to provide for her. She's in a foreign land, an enemy land that has a history of oppressing Israel. She's a victim of tragedy. She's a victim of, of just this incredible hardship culminating in really the, really the destruction of her whole life has happened. And then we come to verse 6. It says this, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab for, make sure you see this, she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So here's another indication that the famine that we've been talking about was a judgment of Israel's sin. It doesn't say, and the famine finally ended. 
It says Yahweh had intervened on behalf of his people. Given what we know about the cycle of judges, why do you think this is? Yeah, maybe they repented. It doesn't say that in Ruth. It doesn't say that in Ruth. I'm making a lot of assumptions. I realize that. But in Judges, we see it over and over again. In fact, toward the end of Judges, uh, there's not much repentance anymore anyway. God just gives them grace and brings them out of the thing. So we can't say that for sure. But what we can say is that according to the narrator, according to the author of Ruth, and according to what Naomi says, it's not that, hey, the, the famine passed. It's that God has now visited his people and he has brought this famine to, to an end. And so God visited his people. Naomi thinks, you know, I am one of Israel. I am, I am a daughter of Israel. What am I doing here in Moab? I'm going to return to my home, to my people. And it says the three of them set out. Verse 7 says, So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. You remember what city they were from? Bethlehem. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem. Exactly. Now, before we get to the conversations with Naomi and Orpah and Ruth, uh, I want you to see something. Because we know the end of the story. Not only do we know what's going to happen at the end of this chapter, but we know what, the end is, we know what God is doing through all of this because we've seen the end of the book in the video we watched. He's bringing forth this Obed who's going to be the grandfather of David, who's going to be the ancestor of Jesus. Uh, he is integrating this Moabite woman into the ancestry of the Messiah, into Israel. Uh, and so we know God's purpose is in it. Um, what should we, as God's people in Christ, learn from this, knowing the end, about suffering and tragedy and hardship in this life? God redeems it. God is working. Yeah. Um, this, this story of Ruth and Naomi has a really great ending, you know, Naomi is excited. Her daughter-in-law marries again to the kinsman redeemer. Uh, later, we find that Naomi still has a plot of land in uh, and around Bethlehem. And so there is a, there is a happy ending. Um, are there always happy endings through suffering and hardship? And not in this life, anyway. Not in this life. But there is, uh, there is a happy ending in Christ for eternity. That's one of the reasons, that's one of the things I don't like about, I mean, don't, y'all don't, y'all don't get all over me. I'm sorry, but it's just my opinion. Like, I have a hard time sometimes watching Christian movies, you know, just because it all, it all always works out at the end. You know, I want to see the Christian movie where it doesn't work out and you have to live with the hardship, but Christ is enough. You know, I want to see that movie, you know, um, so, yeah, make it. Okay, you got a couple mil you want me to borrow? Huh? No, I just told you why I didn't like it. They're starting to make some sure enough good big budget Christian movies. And all Christian movies are not bad or anything. I don't, I don't have anything against them. But, you know, I, I think it's like, so Dana's sick and she's at home. And so I go home and I walk and I walk in the door and I sit down 
and she was there first, and so I, I got to watch Hallmark movies all night, <laughs> you know? And I know how it's going to end. I know who the characters are. Like, I walked in last night, I sat down, and I'm watching, and they're in, like, a pear orchard, and there's a really pretty lady, and there's a rugged guy, and I say, is he the rich one, or is she the rich one? You know, and, 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 and who's the... Who's the, you know, the, the glamorous one that's not going to get the guy, but the hometown girl is going to get the guy? Yeah, they're, they're all the same, you know? Sometimes, sometimes, sometimes when, we live, when we live for the gospel and we live for Christ, we, we need to understand that sometimes hardship is indeed hardship. And the end goal is not protect self and get out of hardship and get out of suffering as quick as you can, as fast as you can. And it's not God is going to just miraculously relieve it from you and take you out of the trial. Sometimes it's you have to understand that Christ is enough in the midst of suffering. Uh, and that's hard for us all. It's not just hard, for, you know, it's hard for us all. Uh, and that's a message that we need to hear. What we're going to see, and the reason why I bring all this up here, by the end of this chapter, Naomi is bitter. She is bitter, and I think she's angry, and she's blaming, in my opinion, some people disagree, but I think she's blaming God, and we'll read those as we get to it. Um, we know, we, um, so as they're journeying back to the land, any questions, comments? Yes, Matt. We don't know. It just says during the time of the judges, so there's no way for me to know. So as they journey back to the land, Naomi speaks to her daughters-in-law. And in Naomi's speech, you really understand she loves these girls. She loves these daughter-in-laws. In verse 8 and 9, it says this, But Naomi said to her two daughter-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal, may Yahweh deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you, you may find rest, each of you in the house of your husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. Why does Naomi try to get them to go back home to their families? Huh? Say it again. Yeah, to get married again. Is that what you said too? Yeah, they have no prospect of a life with Naomi. They have no prospect of life as Moabites in Israel and as widows. They have, by this time, we're going to see Naomi is bitter and she is, she's not really, uh, she's not really very optimistic about her prospects of what the rest of her life is going to be. She recognizes the problems they're going to face in the land of promise with all the Israelites. Uh, what she's doing here is exactly what Anne said. She's releasing them to remarriage. She says, go and each of you to the house of your husband. Be, have security there in the house of your husband. Go and, go and find you a, a husband among your own people. And as I said, at this point, Naomi's hurt. She is bitter. She's suffering a great loss. She loves her daughter-in-laws, and they've shown love to her and to her family. And she just wants to spare them the life of suffering that Naomi has resigned herself to. 
She knows that as a widow, her life is going to consist of probably begging and poverty in the land. She doesn't know. You know, it's been at least 10 years, probably more since she's been back there. She doesn't know what's changed or what's waiting for her. She doesn't want that for them. And it may be even worse for them. They're Moabites. They're widows. You know, they may be facing a life of suffering and hardship even worse than hers. And here we see that, that really these daughters loved their mother-in-law as well. In verse 10, they refused to go. It says, And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. Both Ruth and Orpah said, No, we're coming with you. This is pretty amazing to me. After all the grief that they've shared, I mean, the death of pretty much everybody in their family, all of this, they're more attached to Naomi than they are their own people. Now, they may not be understanding the reality of what's coming, what they're signing up for by showing this love to Naomi. So Naomi tries to convince them again. In verse 11, it says, But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you go therefore, would you therefore wait till they're grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. You hear it? It's exceedingly bitter to me. It, you may translate it, it's more bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She tells them, this family's doomed. I can't provide for you. I don't have any more sons to offer you. And even if I could have more sons, and if I were to have one right now, they'd be old. You'd be old by the time they grew and you were able to marry them. And then in verse 13, we get really this insight into Naomi's mindset in all this. She says, the hand of God, the hand of Yahweh has gone out against me. Her feelings about her lot in life are exposed here. She's bitter about all this. She's either blaming God for all this or she thinks God has come against her in judgment for her sin but either way, she feels like she is the target of God's punishment and God's wrath and God's, or God's neglect. We don't know from what she says. We don't know for sure if it's her blaming God for what happened. He don't love me and he's done this to me. Or if it's just her saying, God is rightly judging me. But she says the hand of God has come out against me. Either way, she feels like she is his target. She has no hope, and she is eaten up with despair. That's going to be more clear when she gets back into Bethlehem and changes her name from Naomi, pleasant, to Mara, bitter. Her whole life is tragedy and suffering. Everything has gone wrong, and there's no hope of things ever getting better. You ever felt like that? Knowing what you know about the book of Ruth and about what God's doing in the book of Ruth, what counsel would you give Naomi at this point in time? Naomi comes to you and said, there's no hope. 
There's no hope. God is against me. God hates me. The hand of God has gone out from among me. He is, she's going to say when she gets back into Bethlehem, I went away full and he brought me back empty. What counsel would you give Naomi knowing the story of the book of Ruth? Like, you're not going to tell her the future. Like, don't worry, God's going to give you a sign. I'm not talking about telling her the future. I'm saying if you knew and if you, you understood the truths of God's word and what God says about himself and us knowing what God is working behind the scenes in this, what counsel would you give someone that came to you with this mindset? In despair, no hope, never going to get any better, nothing I can do. Always something to be thankful for. What else? Confess your sins, repent, and pray to God. Confess your sins, repent, pray to God. Who does God say he is? Who does God say he is? What do you mean by that? Like, he will never leave you or forsake you. He will, you know, God has said who he is and made himself known. Yeah. Uh, does, does what you are saying and what you are thinking line up with what he has said? Yeah. Relate his promises to her. So men don't need compassion or a friend to talk to? Just women, huh? She said because she's a woman, she needs compassion and a friend to talk to. I don't know how to take that. What do men need? He's slapping the face? Is that what? Yeah. What if you... Would it be wrong to come up and say to her, you know, God has a plan in this. Just hold on. Would that be wrong, knowing what you know about the end of the book of Ruth? No. How do you feel when you're in the depth of despair and somebody says, just hold on? Life will take you off a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. I remember my first real, I don't know what you'd call it. I'd been a chaplain for two years, and I walked in. I was called to pediatric floor, labor and delivery floor, actually. And I walked into a mother who was holding her premature child that had passed away. And... With my inexperience, I said, God loves you and he's got a purpose for all this. And that was such the wrong thing to say. That, that hurt more deeply than just saying, I don't know why this has happened, but I'm here to cry with you. Um, it's hard. It's hard to know sometimes. But the truth is that God did have a plan in this. God is good in this. Naomi can't see it. And sometimes we're called just to cry with those who cry, weep with those who weep, and rejoice with those who rejoice. But it's nonetheless true that God is moving in her tragedy, in her heartache, in her despair, in her hopelessness, in her 
we already know because we have, we have the benefit of reading the book or seeing the synopsis of the book in its entirety. We already know what he's doing. He's intentionally bringing Naomi and Ruth back. He's intentionally bringing them back so that she could, this Moabite woman, this enemy of Israel, can marry Boaz and be brought into the people of Israel and bear the grandfather of God's chosen king who would be the ancestor of God's chosen Messiah. We know that God is working, but sometimes it's hard to hear that in the midst, especially when Naomi's whole life has just been tragedy and suffering. Famine first, then my husband took me to Moab, then he died and left me in a foreign land with my two sons who can't have children, obviously, because we've been here 10 years and they've given, me, given us no children. And then those two sons die. And now I'm in a foreign land with two daughter-in-laws, no way to take care of myself. And I'm going back defeated to Israel. It's tough. It's tough. So recognizing the depths of Naomi's despair and her bleak outlook on the future, one of her daughters, if it wasn't bad enough, changes her mind and says, okay, I'm gone. In 14, it, 14, it, oh, I got the wrong one. Uh, no, for, yeah, 14. Oh, there it is. It says, what are you there for? I don't have 14. Somebody read verse 14. Loudly. Again, they wept loudly. They loved each other. Orpha kissed her mother goodbye, and Ruth clung to her. Orpha, Orpha or Orpha or whatever decides, okay, Ruth, I mean, okay, Naomi, maybe you're right. I should go back to have a life in my own land, you know, and we see Ruth stay. Ruth clings to her. Ruth's loyalty here is commended all through the book of Ruth. But the author doesn't give us any indication that Orpha is selfish or or sinful, or a terrible person for, for, for leaving. They all cried together, and Orpah wanted to stay, and then Naomi gives the second speech, and they cry together again, and Orpah goes back, and Ruth stays, clings to, to Naomi. And Naomi tries one more time to get Ruth to leave, and we get, in, in Naomi's next speech to Ruth, we get this. This is the deepest look at Naomi's mindset and Naomi's spiritual state in this despair and hopelessness. It says in verse 15, and she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. That is incredible. You see it? In Naomi's state of mind, it seems that she thinks Ruth would be better off returning to the pagan gods of Moab than returning with her to the land of Yahweh, the people of Yahweh, even if it meant poverty or suffering or whatever. What does that tell you about Naomi's outlook about God and her state before God? Her spiritual state, I should say. Her spiritual state is not good. Her spiritual state is not good. He is forsaken. He thinks she's forsaken him? Yeah, what was you going to say? 
Yeah, her spiritual life being where it is has affected her mentally. Yeah, emotionally, yes. I mean, can you imagine? Now, now think about this. Naomi is an Israelite. And Israelite families are born and bred worshiping Yahweh, you know. Now, granted, in the time of Judges, they were doing all kind of crazy stuff, so that could be a factor in all this. But Naomi is now at the point, she loves Ruth, she loves Orpah, she's now at the point where she's basically saying, it'd be better for you to go back to Chemosh, the god of Moab, because at least there you could have a husband, you could have money, you could have provision, you could have a life. You go back to, with me to Yahweh, to the land of Yahweh and his people, it's going to be nothing but suffering for you. Can you imagine being in that spiritual state where you would tell someone you love, it's better for you just to go back and serve that other God? Yes. Yeah. She said it, it, it may reflect what we saw at the beginning of the chapter when they left in the first place rather than um, repenting, staying, trusting God in the land that he had given them and they left the Moab. They may have been, they may have been part of the Israelites who needed to repent. You know, we just don't know. There's so much about this we, we don't know. So we are doing a lot of guessing, a lot of speculation about um, who they were and who they are and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and Ruth, though, Ruth is not going to be deterred. And the first words out of Ruth's mouth are some of the most beautiful, faith-filled words in all of Scripture. In verse 16 and 17, it says, But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I'll be buried. And may the Lord, what is Lord when it's all capitalized? Yahweh. May Yah she invokes the covenant name of Yahweh. May Yahweh do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Can you imagine she says, where you go, I'll go. She resolves that she will leave her land, her family, her culture, her people, because her bond with Naomi and that family is so strong. She's willing to live as a widow and childless all the rest of her life because of the commitment she made to this family. She made to Naomi and her family. She says, where you live, I'm going to live. The people may hate me as a Moabite. I may be a foreigner all my life, an outcast all of my life, but I am committed to you. I've covenanted myself to you. I will be with you. I'll live where you live. Your people are going to be my people, meaning I refuse to think of myself in terms of my homeland or my heritage or my Moabite upbringing or whatever. I am part of you. And whether they accept me or not, they'll be my people in my heart and mind. Isn't that amazing? Just amazing. And she says, and your God is my God. It doesn't matter whether 
Chemosh or whatever Moabite god they're worshiping would, pro, you know, not that he's real or anything, but if I go back and worship, I, I might get a husband. I might be able to find provision. I might have security. I might have life. But your God is my God. Ruth has decided she's going to follow Yahweh rather than any other gods, including those of her own people. Many commentators disagree with me right here, but I think by this point, Ruth is a believer in Yahweh. I think that she is a believer in the one true God. And look at this. This is incredible. Where you die, I will die and be buried. Do you understand the ramifications of that? She's saying, she's saying here, if we go back there together and you die, I'm going to stay in that land. Stay with those people. Stay with your God until I die and then I'm going to be buried with you. So it's not just, I'm going to be hanging around you, and when you die, then I'll decide what I'm going to do. No, I am part of you. I am part of your people. I am a worshiper of your God. And when you die, if it's 30 years before me, I'm going to remain there for 30 years until I die, and then I'm going to be buried with you. That's a covenant right there. That's commitment. That's loyalty, as we saw in the video. I'm going to stay in that land, serving your God, my God, until I finally die there. Now, we would, man, we just can't understand that kind of, I mean, Ruth is saying, I've made a commitment when I married into your family, when I married your son, and he's dead, he's long dead, but I'm committed to you, I'm part of you, and I'm never going back. I'm never forsaking the bond that we have, talking to her mother-in-law. And if she invokes, she, she invokes the curse of Yahweh, the curse of God. May the Lord do so to me and more if anything but death parts me from you. The irony here is that by the way that they're, they're talking, Ruth has so much more faith than Naomi does. The Moabite. The Moabite has more faith in the true God, then Naomi, Ruth, just go on back to your old gods. They'll probably treat you a whole lot better. No, your God is my God. Naomi's faith, Naomi's faith seems to just be hanging by a thread. Even trying to convince her daughters to go back and worship your other God. I mean, because she thinks that your other gods would give you a better life. Ruth refuses to go back. And in her oath, she invokes God's name, Yahweh's name, the covenant name of Israel's God, knowing that this is the God to whom I must be faithful. Why do you think Ruth is so resolute? Ooh, man, it's time to go. I was having fun. I'm sorry. All right, no more questions. Verse 18. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. They return to Bethlehem immediately, and their tragic and pitiful state is the talk of the town. Verse 19, so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women asked, is this Naomi? They've been gone at least 10 years, probably longer than 10 years. And I don't know this for sure. I'm just speculating but the hardship, the suffering, the tragedy, the current state of her family, she, Naomi probably looks like a defeated, bitter, haggard old woman. Is this her? Is this Naomi? Remember what Naomi means? 
pleasant or gentle. She is so beaten and hardened, she doesn't want to be called that anymore. She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, which the video told you means bitter. This is why. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Sure sounds like she's blaming God and bitter. Yeah, I'm not that anymore. Call me Mara. Because the circumstances of her life, she blames on God. Well, I, this is what he's done to me. She says, I went away full, brought me back empty. What do you think she means by I went away full? I had it, I had it all. Had a family. Had it. It was great. Whatever. Now I have nothing. Is she forgetting that they fled the land that God gave them because there was a famine? Directly due probably to Israel's sin. And now she's come back empty. Later in chapter 4 we're going to find out she's not empty. She still owns a parcel of land there. And more importantly she has this noble, loyal, faithful daughter-in-law with her. She says, the Lord has testified against me. She blames him for all that's happening, saying that he's brought calamity upon her. Is she right or is she wrong? Is she wrong? Huh? You don't get to say both. There's strange similarity there to his prodigal son. Yeah, I guess there is. Although Naomi hasn't come back well, I guess so. Naomi hasn't come back in faith. She's, she's hurting and broken. Uh, yeah. exactly right. That's exactly right. Everybody hear Ann? She said that the Lord didn't testify against her. She's wrong. The Lord allowed suffering in her life to fulfill his purpose, his plan. If there was no suffering, if there were no death of all those guys, then they would have never come back, never met Boaz, never had the heir to David, all, all of the above. So quickly, we're leaving. Comparison between Ruth and Naomi. Both have endured hardship. Both have endured suffering. Both have had uh, deaths of people that they love. Both have, I mean, and both are facing a life of suffering. And, but Ruth sees beyond the tragedy. She clings to God rather than uh, the comfort of this world. She has courage to be faithful even if it means a lifetime of hardship. I'm going to go with you. I'm going to die where you die. I'm going to live where you live. I'm going to serve your God. And she has an unyielding commitment to her family. And what we learn through all this, of course, is God does have a purpose. He's working through all this. Naomi and Ruth can't see it at the time. None of us can see it at the time. 
but we're faithful. We're called to be faithful. We're called to obey God, and he has a purpose in all of the suffering that he does bring us. Questions, comments, cries of outrage? Of course. Yes, it makes a good point. So Naomi's bitter at this point, but the only way Ruth can know of Yahweh and trust in Yahweh is if through these years their family worshiped Yahweh and taught her the, you know, all of what God had done through Egypt and all, all of that had give them a, a Jewish raising with all of the teaching of Yahweh. So that's true. I agree. Okay, let's pray. Father, we do love you. We thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the example of Ruth. We thank you for the example of Naomi, as so many of us uh, endure times uh, like this in our lives. God, we, we pray that you would help us to be faithful to what you've called us to do, faithful to your word, faithful to your commands. And we pray that you would uh, give us give us faith uh, because so often I know myself I, I lack it um, God and uh, fear takes hold and uh, God we pray that you would help us to be faithful to what you called us to do God thank you for this book and I pray that you would enlighten our souls as we walk through the next three chapters over the next month or so we thank you we love you in Jesus name amen